Section 17 of the Critique of Dogmatic Theology An Investigation of the Christian Teaching by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Leo Weiner Chapter 12, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ezekiel Chapter 12. The following place, quote, Section 2, unquote, as it is called in the theology, is especially important. Although in the middle of the exposition it is called only the 2D section from Chapter 2, Part 2, about God the Savior and his especial relation to the human race. In general, the division of the theology into parts, divisions, chapters, sections, articles, into one, two, three, A, B, C, and so forth, is to such a degree complicated and arbitrary, and based on nothing, that there is absolutely no possibility of remembering all the subdivisions, and it is necessary to consult the book every minute, or learn everything by heart. This place is especially important because here, in this very spot, we find the key to all contradictions. Here is to be found the radical, internal contradiction from which resulted the tangle of all the other parts. Here, in this place, is made the substitution of its own teaching in place of the teaching of Christ, and it is done in such a way that it is not possible at first glance to discern this substitution and that it appears as though to the teaching of Christ, which is clear and manifest to all, there were only attached certain revealed truths, which, far from impairing the teaching of Christ, only enhanced the greatness of Christ and of his teaching. The contradiction which is here imperceptibly carried into the teaching, and which later will form the subject of elucidation in the division on grace, consists in this, that Christ the God saved men by descending upon earth to them who had entirely fallen. At the same time he gave them a law, which, when adhered to, will save them. The contradiction consists in this, that if men are entirely lost and God had pity on them and sent to them his Son, who is also God, to suffer and die for men and take them out of the condition in which they had been before the redemption, that condition ought to have changed. But at the same time we hear the assertion that God also gave a law to men, a law of faith and works, which, if they do not follow, they perish just as much as they perished before the redemption. Thus it turns out that if obedience to the law is a condition of salvation, the salvation of men by the death of Christ is superfluous and quite useless. But if the salvation by Christ's death is real, obedience to the law is useless, and the law itself is superfluous. It is necessary to choose one or the other, and the church teaching in reality chooses the latter. That is, it acknowledges the reality of the redemption. But in acknowledging it does not dare make the last necessary deduction that the law is superfluous. It does not dare do so because this law is precious and important to every man. 
and so it acknowledges the law only in words, and that too in a very indefinite manner, and carries on all the discussion in such a way as to prove the reality of the redemption and therefore the uselessness of the law. Christ's law is, in this exposition, something quite superfluous, something which does not result from the essence of the whole matter, something which is not connected with the whole progress of the discussion, and so falls off by itself. That is apparent even from the manner of the expression in the heading, about the act of salvation performed by the Lord, or about the mystery of the redemption, and from the division of the chapter, in which the moral teaching occupies only a small half of the three species of salvation, and from the number of the pages which are devoted to this subject. Section 2. About the act of salvation performed by our Lord Jesus Christ, or about the mystery of the redemption. 143. How did our Lord Jesus achieve our salvation? He achieved our salvation as Christ. Christ means the anointed. The anointed were the prophets, the high priests, and the kings. From this, the theology concludes that Christ was a prophet, a high priest, and a king. And on this foundation, the salvation through Christ and his ministration to men are divided into three parts, into the prophetic, the sacerdotal, and the regal. Why do they make such a division, which, to say the least, is queer? Why is Christ called by the improper name of king, which not only God, Christ, but any moral man would not wish to accept? To this there is no other answer except that so it was written in former catechisms. First comes, one, about the prophetic ministration of Jesus Christ. 144. Conception of the prophetic ministration of Jesus Christ and the truth of his ministration. It is proved by Holy Scripture that Christ was a prophet. 145. The way in which the Lord Jesus achieved his prophetic ministration and the essence of his sermon. The prophetic ministration, according to the theology, consists of two parts, of the law of faith and of activity. For the salvation of men, Christ gives the law of faith and of activity. The law of faith consists in the belief in God the Trinity, in the fall of Adam, in the incarnation, and in the redemption. The law of activity consists in self-renunciations and loving God and your neighbor. 146. This article speaks of Jesus Christ having taught a new, more perfect law in place of the law of Moses. Here is expounded the difference between the law of Christ and the law of Moses, again mainly in relation to faith. In relation to the activity, there is but half a page in which we are informed that the demands of the gospel law are higher than the law of Moses. But nothing is said as to the extent to which the execution of these demands is obligatory for salvation, or what they consist in. But in considering the demands as put forth here, and their execution in reality, it is evident that the law of evangelical activity is not recognized as obligatory for salvation. We are told that by the law of Christ, 
are demanded the endurance and forgiveness of offenses, the love of our enemies, self-renunciation, humility, chastity, not only physical but also spiritual. It is evident that if those are all the demands of Christ's law of activity for salvation, not only will the human race not be saved, but there has not been and never will be saved one in a million. It is evident that that is said only in order not to overlook the moral teaching of Christ, and that this teaching has no place and is not wanted in the theology. 147. Jesus Christ taught the law to all the people and for all times. That the law was given for all men and for all times is proved by text from Scripture, that is, not by indicating that there can be no other law, but by confirming from Scripture that this law is for all men and for all times, meaning by this law only the law of faith. 148. Jesus Christ taught the only saving law which therefore is necessary for the attainment of eternal life. In this article the proof is given that this law gives eternal life, and that is again not proved by elucidation of the meaning of the moral law, but by the assertion that it is confirmed by Scripture and by the Holy Fathers. And again, the law of faith alone is meant. That is the end of the teaching about the prophetic ministration of Jesus Christ. Then follows what is most essential to the church. 2. About the sacerdotal ministration of Jesus Christ, that is, about the redemption. 149. The connection with the preceding conception of the sacerdotal ministration of Jesus Christ, truth and superiority of his ministration. Here it says, quote, As a prophet, Christ the Savior only announced to us the salvation, but did not then achieve the salvation itself. He enlightened our intellect with the light of true divine knowledge and bore witness that he was the real Messiah, who was come to save that which was lost. Matthew 18, 11. He also explained how he was going to save us and how we could make his deserts our own. And he pointed out to us the straight road to the eternal life. But with his work, he saved us from sin and from all the consequences of sin. With his work itself, he earned the eternal life for us through his sacerdotal ministration. Unquote. Quote, but with his work itself he saved us from sin. Unquote. There is here expressed what constitutes the whole essence of the teaching about the salvation, the sacerdotal ministration, in which are included the demands of the law of activity, was only the announcement, but the salvation was in the sacrifice, in his death. Quote, this ministration of our Savior consisted in this, that he brought himself, as an expiatory sacrifice for the sins of the world, and thus reconciled us with God, freed us from sin and its consequences, and acquired eternal benefits for us. Unquote. The salvation takes place from that calculation of the divinity which was achieved independently of us. Farther down is the exposition of how it happens that Christ is the high priest, while the divinity brings the sacrificed and Christ is the victim. Quote, 
the truth of the sacerdotal ministration of our Savior, A, was proclaimed in the Old Testament by God himself through the mouth of the prophet Daniel, speaking to the Messiah. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, 4. B. Was testified to by Christ the Savior in referring to himself the prophetic psalm, in which he is called the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Matthew 22, 44. Mark 12, 36. Luke 20, 42. C. Finally, it was disclosed in detail by St. Paul in his epistle to the Hebrews. Here he, number one, clearly, and on several occasions, called Jesus Christ priest, high priest, sanctifier. For example, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest for ever after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews, verse 5 and 6. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Hebrews 3, 1. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Number two, it is explained why he is called the high priest of Melchizedek. That is due to the fact, a, that Melchizedek was not only a priest of the Most High God, but also the king of Salem, a king of righteousness and peace, and by his unusual combination of two high ministrations, he predicted the unusual high priest of the king. Hebrews 7, 2. B. That Melchizedek, since Holy Scripture does not mention his family, nor the beginning and end of his life, nor his predecessor, nor heir, represents the image of Christ, the Son of God, who abideth a priest continually. Verse 3. C. Finally, that, having received the tenth of the spoils from Abraham himself, he blessed all who were yet in his loins, the sons of Levi, the priests of the Old Testament, and from them received a tithe. And since without any contradiction the lesser is blessed by the greater, he represented in himself the priesthood of Christ, which was more perfect than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Verse 4 through 11. Do you understand it? In this part, there is noticeable not so much the indifference of the writer as to whether what he says has any sense as an apparent desire to collect such words as can have no meaning. If any sense can be made out of this chapter, it is this, that Christ sacrificed himself to God for men and that the one who wrote the epistle in which he wished to express the idea that Christ was the redeemer of sins chose an obscure comparison with Melchizedek, and that the church who accepted all the epistles of Paul and those that are ascribed to him as writings of the Holy Ghost has stuck to the word high priest, which explains nothing and gets things mixed up. 
The sense is that Christ brought himself as a sacrifice for men. To elucidate it, there are quoted the words of St. Gregory the Divine, St. Epiphanes, and others. Quote, St. Gregory the Divine. He was the victim and also the high priest, a priest but also God. He presented his blood to God, but purified the whole world. He was raised to the cross, but nailed sin to the cross. See, St. Epiphanes. He sacrificed himself in order that, by bringing a most perfect and living sacrifice for the whole world, he might make void the sacrifices of the Old Testament, himself the victim, himself the sacrifice, himself the sacrificer, himself the king, himself the high priest, himself the sheep, himself the lamb, who became everything for our sake. Unquote. 150. How did our Lord Jesus perform his sacerdotal ministration? His sacerdotal ministration consisted in this, that, number one, men fell by their pride and disobedience. He was humble and obedient. And, number two, since men had become worthy of the wrath of God, Christ took upon himself the whole wrath of God, suffered and died, and became the curse. It is impossible to express what is meant by it. It is necessary to read the article as it is written. Quote, Here, as the high priest, he really sacrificed himself on the cross as an expiatory victim to God for the sins of the world and redeemed us with his precious blood. 1 Peter 1, 19 So that his incarnation and his whole life on earth served only as a preparation and, as it were, a gradual ascent toward that great sacrifice. Consequently, in the word of God and in the teaching of the church is represented to us 151, especially the death of Jesus Christ as a sacrifice of redemption for our sake. Unquote. His death is the chief sacrifice of redemption for our sake. God sacrifices to God and redeems an obligation from the good God. All these are internal contradictions. There is a contradiction in every sentence, and these sentences are contradictorily combined with each other. I repeat what I said about the dogma of the Trinity. It is not exactly that I do not believe. I do not know what there is to believe. I can believe or not believe that tomorrow a city will appear in heaven, or that the grass will grow as high as the sun. But I cannot believe that tomorrow will be today, or that three will be one and yet three, or that pain does not pain, or that one God was divided into two and yet is one, or that the good God punishes himself and redeems from himself his own error of creation. I simply see that the one who is talking does not know how to talk or has nothing to say. There is no rational connection. The only external connection is the references to Scripture. They give at least some kind of an explanation, not of what is being talked about, but why such terrible absurdities may be uttered. As in many preceding places, the quotations from Scripture show that the assertion of these absurdities does not take place voluntarily, but results, as in the history of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from a false 
for the most part, crude comprehension of the words of Scripture. Here, for example, in confirmation of the fact that the death of Christ, the God, has redeemed the human race, there are quoted the passages from the Gospel, from the discourse with Nicodemus. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three fourteen fifteen. It says, quote, The Son of Man must be lifted up. Unquote. How can that mean the redemption of the human race by God? He who will read the whole conversation with Nicodemus will see clearly that it could not mean anything like that. It means precisely what the words themselves mean. The Son of Man, meaning by, quote, Son, unquote, himself as man, or man in general, must be lifted up like the brazen serpent of Moses. By what manner of reasoning can one come to the conclusion that it means the death on the cross, or more wonderfully still, the redemption? The next passage, adduced as a proof, is the one where John says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh the sin of the world. John 1, 29. This Greek passage cannot be translated otherwise than the Lamb which lifts off, takes away the sin of the world. And this passage is translated by, quote, taketh, unquote, to which the new translations add, quote, upon himself, unquote. And this interpolation is regarded as a proof. The next proof is this. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew twenty, twenty-eight. How can this verse mean anything but that the man, he himself, or man in general, must give his life for men, or his brothers? Farther, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. John ten, eleven, fourteen, fifteen. The shepherd gives his life for his flock, just as I am doing. How does the redemption follow from that? When they ask a sign from him, similar to the manna, he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. John six, fifty-one. Continuing his comparison, he says that he is the only bread that men ought to eat. And this bread, that is, his example and teaching, he would confirm by giving his flesh for the life of the world. How does the redemption follow from that? Farther, this is my body which is given for you. Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took the cup, saying, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew twenty six twenty seven through 28 Bidding his disciples farewell with a cup of wine and bread in his hands, he says to them that he is supping with them for the last time and that he will die soon. Quote, Think of me at your wine and bread. With your wine think of my blood, which will flow for you, that you may live without sin. With the bread think of the body, which I am giving for you. Unquote. 
Where is here the redemption? Quote, he will die, will give his blood, will suffer for the people, unquote, are the simplest kind of expressions. The peasants always say about martyrs and saints, quote, they pray, work, and suffer for us, unquote. This expression means nothing more than that the saints intercede before God for the unrighteous and the sinful. But that is not enough. They adduce as proof from the Gospel of John the following reflection of the author of the Gospel on the words of Caiaphas. And thus spake he not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. John eleven fifty one fifty two. It is evident that there are no indications in the gospel, not to speak of proofs, about the redemption, if such words are adduced as proofs. Caiaphas predicts the redemption, and immediately afterward has Christ killed. That is all which is adduced from the gospel in proof of the redemption of the human race by Jesus Christ. After that follow proofs from Revelation and from the writings of the apostles that is, from those books which the church collected and corrected when it already professed the dogma of the redemption. But in these books in the epistles of the apostles, we do not yet see the confirmation of the dogma, but there occur here and there obscure expressions with which all the epistles are filled, and which may rudely be interpreted in the sense of the dogma, as has been done by the consequent so-called fathers of the church, but not by those of the first centuries. It is enough to read the history of the church to be convinced that the first Christians did not have the slightest conception about this dogma. Thus, for example, quote, the Apostle Peter commands the Christians, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, forasmuch as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 Peter says that it is possible to mend only through faith in the teaching which was branded by the death of him who was as innocent as a lamb. And this is taken as a confirmation of the dogma of the redemption. Quote, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. 1 Peter 2, 21, 24. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, unquote. 1 Peter 3, 18. The cruel death of Christ, who left us an example of life to follow him by, ought to make us heal ourselves from sins and come to God. The expression is concise and metaphorical, just as the masses speak when they say that the martyrs have worked for us, and that is taken as a proof. Quote, for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, 
how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Quote, for, quote, means in consequence of our sins. Quote, Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God, for a sweet-smelling savor. Unquote. Ephesians 5, 2. Christ's love for us brought him to a shameful death. That, too, is considered a confirmation of the dogma. Quote, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justifications. Unquote. Romans 4, 25. The resurrection is mentioned as a miracle, and it says that he was delivered on account of our sins. Quote, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Unquote. Romans 3.25 Again, a misty, tangled sentence, like all of Paul's expressions, which denote one and the same thing, namely, that the death of a just man has freed men from their previous errors, and all that is regarded as a proof. But the chief proof is found in the interpretations of the fathers of the church, that is, of those men who have invented the dogma of the redemption. Quote, A. St. Barnabas. We will believe that the Son of God could not have suffered except for us. For our sins he wished to bring as a sacrifice the vessel of the Spirit. B. St. Clement of Rome. We shall look up to our Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood was given for us. We shall look up attentively to the blood, and shall consider how precious his blood is before God since, having been spilled for our salvation, it obtained the grace of repentance for the whole world. C. Ignatius Theophorus Christ died for you in order that you, believing in his death, might be saved from death. D. St. Polycarp He suffered death itself for our sins. He suffered everything for us that we might live in him. Unquote. Or another place, as a sample of that arbitrariness and blasphemous pettiness with which the whole book is permeated. End of section 17